0: the um, like action, fun movies, like, or you know adventure movies, but um, if I do watch a romantic comedy, I like the part where they fast forward through time in the course of one song, they do the video montage that shows like the nerd, and then he's getting helped, and he's figuring it out, and then he's got it together, or the, the person who can't play the game, and he's practiced, 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 and then by the end of the song, he's kind of got it together, And so what I'm going to do with you is give you like a little visual video montage of David. Since it's been a while since we've been together, we're going to do the video montage of David. And you can pretend like the song that's singing is like a remix of David. uh, Saul's slain his thousands and David's slain his (laughs) tens of thousands. That's going on in the background. The women are all singing. Um, So real quick, let's just recap what we know of David just from some major events through to now, just to get us back oriented on, on where we are. And y'all may have done this in your small groups, but um, we first see David when Samuel goes to his house and picks him as this unlikely son of all of the brothers. It's David that will be next anointed king. So really the first time we see him, he's anointed king. And yet that is yet to be realized that he will be king. Um, he goes to Saul's court and is playing music for um, Saul, dodging Saul's spears as he goes. He kills Goliath. He's bonded in covenant friendship to Prince Jonathan. Uh, He gets the foreskins of 200 Philistines to marry Princess Michael, the daughter of Saul. And that's normally like when the the music ends in the video montage, and things are great. But sadly, in our little montage of David, Uh, It's the opposite that happens. Instead of this peak, while things are great, it just gets worse and worse and worse and worse. And so when we find him now, I mean, what continues after he marries Michael is that he's wrongly accused of grasping after the throne. Saul's getting jealous. Saul's getting worried that David's going to take his throne. So he is driven out by Saul. And he kind of doesn't know where to go. He goes to the Philistines. He froths at the mouth. Remember this. Um, God is bringing David, this motley crew of these guys that you just think they're in the first part of the video montage. When things are looking bad, you have this bad group that finally gets together. No, no. This is the group that we're ending up with. It's just this ragtag group of all these random uh, miscreants. And so here is David with them. Um David helps the people of that town, I'm going to mispronounce it, Kelah, and then finds out, well, they're about to turn you into Saul. And um, so then we meet David in chapter 24, hiding in an isolated, dark cave. And it would seem that things really couldn't get much worse. I mean, he has done the reverse makeover. He has gone from the palace, and he has ended up in the dungey darkness. And so... um, He's in an Ngetty. And the Ngeti, you can see your pictures, flip over your hem that I photocopy for you. Ngetti is a real place. I always like seeing these real visual things. Um en Gedi is a beautiful oasis region with tons and tons of cliffs, tons and tons of caves. It's really cool if you want to Google it and look at it further, but it's made of shale rock. So there's just Dozens of hiding places where people conceivably really could have hidden 600 men. Um, It almost looks like the Texas Hill Country, but a little bit grander in scale. Um, Okay, so um, that's where he is. And so we're going to talk a lot about the wilderness, which is where he is. It's desert. Um, and climate, but also we're going to talk about it not only as a location, but as just a a state of the soul. Because we find with David that that's that's where he is, not just physically, but his soul is just trotting along. Um, When we think about wilderness, it it can overlap with the word suffering, I think, or as I'm using it, I don't... um, It can be that wilderness equals suffering, but wilderness can also be a little bit different from suffering in that it's like this time um, of isolation, this time of just waiting, this time of almost nothing happening and um, no progress being made. There's been this proclamation on David's life that he's going to be the king, and yet here he is in a cave. And um, it's not that he's been there for, like, what we see as 2,000 words. It's been, like, 2,000 days. It's just taking a long time that he is there waiting and waiting in this wilderness. Um, And you understand why in the Psalms he says things like, how long? How long? Because it is feeling bleak to him. And um, so in Psalm 7 and Psalm 57, you could write those down. Those are directly related to this event of hiding in the caves of Engedi. And you'll see him say things like, Arise, O Lord, awake. He's just hoping for this justice to finally come. And that restlessness and that waiting um, really resonates with me in this already. But not yet state of eternal life that I'm in. And I bet it does with you. And it does with all of us and all of creation. We think of Romans 8:22. We know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth till now, not only creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we await the adoption of sons, the redemptions of our bodies. So just that longing to get through this wilderness time. <coughs> um Okay, well, the temptation for David clearly would have been to feel forgotten. Um, in chapter twenty-five, that little blip—I bet you talked about in your small group—when Samuel dies, it's just kind of. And Samuel died, and he was buried in his house at Ramah. Um, this would have been the lowest point, this at, until this time in David's video montage. It just would be crushing news to him, because um, Kate Gabbers called. Um, Samuel, David's walking Bible. It was just like, he, he was God's voice. He was he was what David had ever known. He was like a safety net to David and he's gone. And um, it's bad enough kind of running for your life, but then to feel like you're alone without that true north, it felt lonely to him and, um, and discouraged. And it made me think about how the disciples likely felt when um, Jesus ascended into heaven and just left them while they were waiting for that deposit for the Holy Spirit to come. It would have felt, it would have felt scary. Um, and here he is in the cave experiencing this. Um, okay. Israel probably felt the same way too. I wondered as I read this and read some, what some commentaries said, if, um, as all of Israel mourned, if many didn't just say, oh, how long all we have now. Is Saul, and David, who knows where he is. So, God, though we see, gives grace to the um, in the wilderness to David. We see that he is David's refuge, his strength, his very present help in time of trouble, and um, and this theme of grace is really kind of what I'll focus on in the rest of this time together. Um, when you think about grace. It does have lots of different sides to it. Like if I said, um, Sarah, you're, you're crafty. Can you please get me from your house, and of the multitudes of thread that you must have, will you please bring me a blue thing of thread? And Sarah could come and bring me a blue thing of thread, but it might be aqua, turquoise, maybe all sorts of different, midnight blue, you name it. It's really hard to match blues by the way, but she could she could come with any one of these things, but they'd all be, all those would be blue, but they'd all be a different shade of blue, and that's kind of what I thought about when I thought about God's grace, because when you say God is so full of grace, that can mean a lot of good different things, and in this particular passage, it's not necessarily, although it is always a little bit of everything else, um, we can think of his saving grace, his cleansing grace, his preserving grace, forgiving grace, but in this we see his restraining grace on the life of David and several other characters in um, the story that we'll read. So, chapter 24, we meet not only a disrobed and defecating king, which, make no mistake, is intentionally included to make you almost giggle. It's, It's Saul being brought low, okay? So, There he is in the cave thinking he is all alone. Um, And in that cave, we see how God does restrain David in the face of great temptation. Um, And he uses that by helping David yield to his tender conscience. Um, When I was growing up, I used to think about this story. I don't get it. I mean, they're at war. What was the big deal about killing Saul? I mean, that's what... Soldiers do. They were at war. And, but this definitely, as y'all all know and talked about, was not going to be self-defense. It would be assassination. It would be murder. Um, but it would have been tempting because it was a shortcut. It would have quickened that journey from anointing to coronation. It would have made it fast. Um, but just because the end result would it be that he'd be king and that that was right? He was anointed a king. That doesn't mean it was the right decision to make. Um, just like when David's greater son was in the wilderness and Satan offered him um, offered him the kingdom to be king. And Jesus didn't take the shortcut because he knew that was not right and it wasn't what God had ordained. And it was the crown without the cross. And that wouldn't wouldn't be right. And so, too, David here, by the grace, the restraining grace of God, makes the decision to wait. Um, Okay, so when you think of David, when you think about conscience, you see in this story, don't you see how Saul and David really pair with each other to show what conscience, good conscience is and what bad conscience is or conscience isn't? Um, Someone said that conscience is like the voice of God in the soul, And um, it doesn't manipulate God's ordinary ways um, to interpret the situation with what we want it to be doing. So that would be like this. That would be like David saying, you know, maybe my men are right. Ordinarily, God detests killing, but he's the one who brought us together. Of all of these thousands of cliffs in Engedi, here we are in the darkness and no one can see us. Um, so we learn from David and his tender conscience that here that an open door isn't always proof of God's will, and especially when it clashes with conscience. Um, okay, so then we see David's conscience, and then we see Saul. And I don't even know if I can call that a conscience. I don't know what that is, lack of conscience. But um, we see in him more than conscience, we see this um, pretended unbelieving, um, piety. It's almost like being religious and not anything spiritual. Um, and his Saul, Saul's piety causes him at the very beginning of this whole mess to recreate the narrative. David is after me. He's trying to get me. He's trying to kill me. You may or may not have sent me a disconnection notice. I am not sure about that. (laughs) Um, So it's not facing the situation with responsibility, with taking responsibility. So that self piety recreates the narrative. Have you ever done that? I might have done it to the electric company just the other day. Um, And Saul also to show that piety that he has instead of. That reaction we see in Luke 18, um, the tax collector who wouldn't even lift up his eyes to heaven beat his breast, saying, God be merciful to me, a sinner. Instead of that, Saul, if you'll notice, says to David when David calls him out on, um, on his constant pursuit in his sin, um, Saul says, you are more righteous than I. I am righteous, but you are... You're more righteous than I, so it's this not full realization of any sort of um, of sorrow or godly sorrow for what he's done. He had he certainly doesn't change his course. He even um, one commentator. A lot of people thought it was totally normal for him to ask for protection, but another commentator was like, "That's kind of a, that was a lot of gall in the midst of this hot pursuit of his life." To then turn around and say, you saved me, but can you also save my family too? Um, So it's just that the expectation, the demands being made, rather than the you do with me what you want. How dare I have ever, how could I have ever done this to you? Um, Okay, so when we think about God's using his restraining grace and also our conscience coming into play, um, it's kind of tricky because there's this both both of these things happening at the same time and it kind of makes our minds want to have like many little explosions in there. Kay Gabrish talks about how it's like riding a bicycle and and God is do, the whole front wheel and we're the whole back wheel and so they're both going at the same time, but yet God's totally driving the bus of our I mean the the bike of our sanctification and we are too and it's this confusing thing. It doesn't fit into any of our math algorithms. We just don't get it, but That's what's going on in this cave in En and going on with us as well. And um, another way to see it that I kind of was thinking about was, like, um, if you see an early walker that are so cute and those little baby fat legs that are toddling along, those babies are walking. I mean, they're not just, like, being dragged around. They are walking. But what do you see the parent doing? Leaning over, breaking her back, leaning over with those two index fingers and guiding this process along, getting the baby from point A to point B, and I just thought, hopefully that analogy doesn't really break down. But that, I just that's that's the heart of God as He restrains us and helps the, helps us along. We are doing things, and He is doing things together to make this beautiful walk of sanctification happen, and that's what happens with David. Um, so. God's restraining grace utilizes David's tender conscience and David gets the wisdom not to kill Saul, but also he gets the discernment not to trust Saul because Saul is saying all sorts of really nice things and it would have been tempting to go, oh, we're finally done with this. Let's go home. But that does not happen. That offer isn't made by Saul. He goes his way and David goes his own. And it calls to mind Matthew 10 when Jesus says, I'm sending you out as sheep among wolves, so be wise as serpents and as innocent as doves. And that's what we see David in this passage do. Um, Okay, so then we see God's gracious restraint again with Nabal. And uh, as y'all, I know, probably discussed, foolishness was such a characteristic of his life that it became his identity and his name. So um, he, David and his friends had acted as bodyguards to Nabal and to all of Nabal's property. And it would have been, he, Nabal only gained by David's presence in the outskirts of where his livestock would have um, grazed. So Nabal had only been helped by David and Nabal definitely knew who David was. Um, It would have been totally appropriate for David to make this request of Nabal because he had really, actually, truly been um, kind of inadvertently serving Nabal, and Nabal knew it. Um, Nabal knew who David was because only 30 miles away, there had once been a gigantic giant and a big army, which had been, poof, gone all of a sudden because of a little brave boy. This guy knew who David was. Um, So for him to have assaulted David's reputation like that, it was an offense, for sure. David had a right to be angry. Um, But unlike so many other times, we see David consult the Lord. Should I go to Calah and save these people? Should I do this? He does not do that. And he acts really... um, impulsively and he felt totally justified that in that and I don't know about y'all but there's so much murder and brutality in the Old Testament that sometimes it's hard to think like well was that right or was that okay like is it okay to chop up a body into 12 pieces and send it around is it not okay oh no that's okay no no that was wrong and and so in this you kind of just I don't know sometimes you just don't know where this story's going and oh the, the commentators say that's okay 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 but no it not only would have been murder, it would have been mass murder because not only was David wanting Nabal, he wanted all of the men that were under him and serving him. Um, It reminds me of the time I was watching the show with Jerry and um, this really terrible, terrible, brutal thug who was this drug dealer was under a bridge and he was just, he had just taken power among all these other drug dealers and he was about to just lay down the law to these guys and um, you just hate this guy because he's murdered and he's done all these things. And this other thug, while while he, the main one is lashing out to all these other guys, the other thug walks up and just shoots him in the head. And I turned to Jerry and I was like, that was the best decision.
1: <laughs> just like that. Like, there was no
0: pause. It was just like, oh, that was a good decision. Like, get him out of the picture. And um, and we laughed, thankfully. But, um, but that's our heart. That was... Just fast, David was ready to strap on those swords and go after Nabal. Um, so we learn from David in 25 that he has a, he's fighting a really, really dangerous enemy. It's not Saul. It's not Nabal. It's his own heart. And um, in his book, The Enemy Within, if you've never read this, it's super, super good. It's an easy and quick read. Um, but Chris Lungard calls our hearts... Um, a haunted house, and also a maze that only God can solve. And he says this, As endless and complicated as this war is, believers rush in with confidence. The Holy Spirit takes the horror out of the horror show. We don't know our hearts, but he does, Psalm 139. He's a blazing torch we carry into the haunted house, and he ferrets out the monsters. He leads us into a closet under the stairs, and uncovers seething hatred. He shines under the bed and exposes a sniveling lust. No sin escapes his searching eye. And that is good. That is grace. That is the grace of God that no sin would escape his searching eye. And that grace is extended to David. And we see that um, In this passage, Um, Galatians 15, 517 says the flesh wars against the spirit within us. And this war is just common to us as believers, isn't it? I mean, we experience it every single day. And um, so with David, we identify with him when he just goes out. That is a good decision. And um, Abigail is who God uses to um, expose David's sin and to yet again, restrain his man. And Abigail is just this beautiful picture of the gospel. Um, Kate Gabbrish reminds us that when Abigail says, let the guilt be on me, that she is pointing again to David's greater son who will um, take on the iniquity of us all. So it's just a really amazing story to read. And um, David can take heart from this instance that he is not alone in the wilderness. It's been long. And he is so tired. But here comes Abigail. Who would have expected he would have gotten a wife out of hiding in caves? No one. Um, God has so many ways that he blesses us with people in our lives to point us to him and encourage us and even talk us off a ledge sometimes. Um, so Abigail reminds David not to have the murder on his conscience as he, uh, and not to take the shortcut to the kingdom by doing this. Um, or... That wouldn't really be the shortcut to the kingdom, but a shortcut to um, vengeance and reminds him that God is going to, to take care of this, that you leave these problems to the Lord. And um, this becomes a huge theme in those Psalms, 57 and 7, when David spling Saul, that he trusts that the Lord will take care of this. Um, and he does, doesn't he? Rather swiftly with poor Nabal. Um, okay, so in twenty-six, when we move on, um, we see that God's restraining grace allows David to achieve what would otherwise be totally impossible for him. I love this version, um, this part of this story of David, because here he is walking into Saul's camp through hundreds of soldiers, and not one of them is on guard and not one of them is awake. He is like the guy who hopped over the White House fence and like ran across the yard and ended up in the white house except it's the middle of the night and he's just standing over president obama's body and there's no secret service anywhere to be found i mean this is uh not magic and it's not super stealthy indian skill that david has this is nothing short of the hand of god this is god doing this for david reminding him of who he is In the wilderness, who he is for David, and um, again, as Saul is at his very most vulnerable spot, David continues to be, of course, guided by that restraining grace of God. Because what happens with David's buddy? This is your chance. This is it. Let's do it. Let's do this. I I could do it in one blow. I wouldn't even take me two. I'll just do it one. He's like, no, this isn't. This is not the time. But he takes two things. He takes. Um, the rod, which is the sign of Saul's power, and he takes the water, which is the sign of of comfort. And um, he exposes publicly Saul's wickedness before a whole camp of Saul's men. It wasn't like the cave where just Saul and his few men saw that. It was everyone. Okay, so though God may not Specifically do for you what he did for David that very night. He is for you and he is for me what he was for David that night. He is an encourager in our wilderness. And he is ever present. And he enables us when our temptation is feeling really strong. And we feel like we're at the end of the rope. Um, he is holding up his index fingers of steel for you to walk along and hold in this sanctification walk. Um, David's wilderness days are coming to an end. At this passage, we're going to see just a few more chapters of him kind of being in limbo. But this is the last time he'll ever see Saul. This, this is their goodbye. And um, in this passage, when you look over well, this greater passage, chapter 24, chapter 25, chapter 26, you see that David needed this wilderness time. This was good. It was so hard, but it was really good. And we see that God likes wildernesses, and he, he does that for a lot of people that he calls. For example, Abraham and Sarah, you're going to be the father of nations and have tons of kids, but go out and wander in the desert for a long time. Joseph, here's this dream of greatness, but here you go down to the pit and into slavery. Uh, Moses, burning bush, this is amazing, I'm going to do something great, 40 years in the desert. Elijah, you're going to rid Israel of the bales, out you go to the dry stream. Um, John the Baptist, first prophet in 400 years, where did he live? The wilderness, Jesus, baptized, time to do your stuff, to the wilderness you go to be tempted by Satan. Paul, converted on the road to Damascus, doesn't jump right into ministry, two years in the wilderness, on his own. Not literally the wilderness, but more metaphorically. But on his own, not with not with the body of Christ. And um, so God uses these times of just, nothing happening, things just not being great. He uses them. He calls us. He uses these times. And he allows for two things to happen. Karen mentioned this earlier. Um, Kay Gabbers said that, he, um, he allows for these times to come to, to test our character. But sometimes we think, is this a test of the Lord or is this temptation from Satan? Which one is it? And the, the idea is put forth. It's both. It's both. It's just both. God somehow, again, uses both. Satan's trying to make it turn for bad. God's going to try and use it for our growth. Um, so God knows too much palace isn't good for us. And so um, he likes the wilderness. And it reminds us of Romans eight sixteen seventeen. 17. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs and heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Okay, so that's our declared calling. Great. Let's wrap it up. But the verse continues, provided we suffer with him in order that we also may be glorified with him. So, again, it's just that calling and then the waiting and then the enduring and the trusting and the growth. Um, Okay, in closing, I want to talk to you about one of my very favorite people who has never truly existed, which is Jean Valjean, Prisoner 24601. And I'm sad, Courtney Jewett isn't here. Um, But, because we have a mutual love for Les Mis. But he was... um, hunted his entire life by Inspector Javert, and he was once in prison for stealing a loaf of bread. He gets out on parole, kind of breaks bail, and in the subsequent 1,000-plus pages of the book, Jean Valjean is scaling city walls, hiding in convents, having multiple identities, so that he is not captured by Javert, so that he can protect the life of this young Cosette. And so... um, Jean, Javert doesn't care. He doesn't care about Cosette. He doesn't care that Jean Valjean has done all of these good things in the meantime. He wants justice and he doesn't care that, that Jean Valjean loves God. So, in the end of the story, in the barricades of the French Revolution, um, through a twist of fate, Javert, who is spying on Jean Valjean and these men, is c- captured. And who is going to kill this guy? Who is willing to kill Javert? And Jean Valjean says, I'll do it. Okay, y'all go out. Here's the gun. Go in the back alley. You do the deed. So they go out into this back alley, and the title of the chapter is Jean Valjean Takes His Revenge. Okay, so it's time for Jean Valjean to make Javert pay for hunting him like a mouse for a decade of his life. Does this sound familiar? And Jean Valjean's ultimate revenge is that um, he decides to be merciful. He shoots the gun into the air and um, instead of firing at Javert and he says, it is done. That's what the book says. I don't know what the movie says, but the book says it is done. And Javert is just so perplexed. This is just not on his grid. He cannot conceive of such mercy And so he just kind of confusingly lurks off into the darkness. And it's such a picture of mercy. And that is the mercy we see in this passage. And that's the mercy we receive um, every day. Um, In in these passages, we're not David and we're not even Jean Valjean. We don't get to be him. Um, Apart from the abundant grace of God left alone in the wilderness, we are inspectors of air without mercy. We are Saul, without conscience. We're Nabal, without regard for God and his people. We are chapter 25, David, without restraint on a mission to gratify our fleshly desires. We're the ones who go, that was a good decision, just like that. Um, and yet, the nail is hammered into the cross, and Christ mercifully says on our behalf, it is finished. And Romans Nine Twenty Three reminds us, Um, That in order to make known the riches of his glory, God made us vessels of mercy. That's when it talks about how can the potter, I mean, the clay save the potter. And um, in this, he says that we are vessels of his mercy. We get to receive his mercy. We get to pour it out on others during this really long wilderness time that we have. Um, David didn't walk through the wilderness alone and neither do we as our loving father graciously just holds our fingers and guides us as we go let's toddle along together um, as we just uh, pursue this upward calling of Christ full of gratitude in our hearts for the great strength that he is in our weakness and full of compassion um, to us as his vessels of mercy um let me pray Thank you, God, that you are merciful to us. You are compassionate as you were um, to David. You are compassionate to us that when we were yet sinners, you reached out and you had great mercy to us. You forgave us. You uphold us by your righteous right hand. You strengthen us and help us. And Lord, um, we are in your care. Forgive us for being so bold as to think that we've got this on our own. Help us to rely on you to to embrace our weakness as as our glory, that we are upheld by you. Pray that you would be glorified in our lives as we um, consider who you are, and that you would be glorified as we continue in the study of Samuel. Pray in your name. Amen.